Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Have you ever wondered how inbred the Habsburgs really were? What women in the past used for birth control? Or what Queen Victoria's nine children got up to? On the History Tea Time podcast, I profile remarkable queens and LGBTQ plus royals, explore royal family trees, and delve into women's medical history and other fascinating topics. Join me every Tuesday for History Tea Time, wherever fine podcasts are enjoyed. Hello everyone, Stucky here. And I'm Gabby. And welcome back to the podcast, my hoes. Welcome back everyone to an episode that, honestly, Gabby has been roasting me all day about this here in the first place because I know I'm going to mention it over the course of this episode, but today's episode is kind of inspired by a certain movie that I have yet to see and Gabby is roasting me for the fact that I have not seen it, even though we were discussing all this stuff for exactly, you know, all the movies and media and everything that we're now using for the the history of everything videos on YouTube. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I never saw the um the the imitation, imitation game. game. Yeah, I literally could have sworn I saw it with you, but I'm assuming it came out before we even met. So I saw it with my 2014, friend. and we met the next year. Right. Yeah. So I saw it with my best friend at the time, and for some reason, I could have sworn I saw it with you. And I'm like, oh yeah, I remember when we watched the imitation game? And he was like, I've never seen it. Can't believe you've never seen it. I know, I know. It, especially with it, it's kind of weird because we obviously got started on TikTok. And you see all these different movies where people are like, oh, my God, this happened. Or like, I can't believe this is a movie or I can't believe this is a show or I can't believe this is a news story. And it'll be stuff that literally happened five or six or seven or eight years ago. But now a clip or a scene of it or something is going viral and everyone is reacting to it because they're like just now being introduced to it for the first time. A lot of people and it happens as you get older because you saw it when you were younger and then the younger people have never even heard of it. So you literally will watch every single pop culture moment cycle throughout your entire life. Yep. And I learned this because I was on Tumblr when I had no business being on Tumblr. And every few years, the exact same things that blew our minds on Tumblr comes back up to like the next generation on a different social media platform and the same exact posts that we made that went viral go viral yep. again. It's, it is actually exhausting to watch. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's yep. like the circle of life of pop culture. That makes a lot more sense, actually. So it's because of that, because of this movie. And I had seen some clips that had come across it on TikTok. And I myself thought that it was a newer thing when it came out. When I started seeing those and I was like, oh, man, so there's a there's a new movie that's going to be coming out about like the Enigma machine. Oh, that's so cool. And then I went and actually looked it up. It's like, oh, no, no, that's um, that that is from nine years ago at this point, because that was 2014 when that came out. Were you living? Oh, you were in Japan. 
I was in Japan I was at the time to be that like, it came Were out. you living under a rock? No, you were in Japan. <laughs> I was literally in Japan. It's actually funny. I was in Japan the exact same year I escaped from Frozen. And then I'm like, finally, I don't have to see that everywhere that I go. And then I go to Japan and it was just arriving in Japan. So it was Let everywhere. It go. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So I guess that brings us to the whole point about the episode that we're going to be talking about in the first place, because I even wrote it into the notes like I do not know how to really begin today's episode, because what we're talking about with the imitation game, with the Enigma machine, with all of this is that this is this is two different sets of stories kind of wrapped up into one, but neither one is necessarily long enough, in my opinion, to merit its own thing, but also simultaneously, they're so intertwined. This is this is the interesting conundrum. To focus more on the Enigma machine or on Alan Turing, because the stories are kind of crazy, but they are so closely intertwined and connected that I fear that we're just going to have to jump into it and kind of work our way around it. Just for anyone who is confused, let's kind of explain what it is that we're talking about. So above all, when you hear the name Alan Turing, what's the first thing that pops into your head? His story was really sad. Yeah. And I don't want to spoil it, so I'm not going to say but. It's not going to end super great. Yeah, yeah. I, Actually, it's I, I like a, a worst the end. case possible scenario. It's one of those things in history that is a, it's a tragic story of a person who is a hero that is mistreated by society. And that has happened many, many different times in our history. And unfortunately, because of this man's physical attractions, I guess you could say, his he sexuality, was, you yeah, don't have to tiptoe around yeah, it. Yeah, it was because of his sexuality. His legacy for years was tarnished until really recently. It was not until I think the, it was either the 70s or the 90s that a lot of the information about him ended up coming out. Wait, did they actually keep it hidden? A bunch of the stuff that he did, yeah. Wow. Yes, that, that's where it gets even more messed up. And we're going to explain it because the man was a hero. Because I'm saying this right now, guys. Above all, when you think of the name Turing, this guy is a person whose name is associated for many people with top secret wartime operations. This is a guy who is part of Britain's Code Breakers at Bletchley Park, which is this sprawling kind of estate that is in North London, where they would oversee the effort to specifically break the codes of the Nazis back during World War II, like the Enigma machine, the, the Nazi code service that they were utilizing in order to be able to encrypt all of their messages that for many years, this has seemed impenetrable, or if not impenetrable, so incredibly difficult that even if they managed to resolve it, even if they did manage to decode something, it wasn't going to be useful for the next time that they had to do something. The Germans themselves regarded for years that the codes were basically unbreakable. So at the time that all this was going down, the German submarines, the U-boats, these were prowling the Atlantic. They were hunting Allied ships, they were carrying all this vital cargo for the war effort and the convoys to and from Europe going to the Americas and then also down into Africa. This is all the territory where the, these vital, crucial supplies that were supplying things from food, medicine, weapons, ammunition, literal just like steel and other raw material that would be needed for the war effort. All of this was being transported by convoy. And so the idea that the Germans had at the time was that if they were able to destroy enough of these convoys, they would be able to so severely weaken and cripple the Allied war effort that eventually Britain would sue for peace. 
And that would end things because at the time before the United States actually entered into the war, if Britain had capitulated or had given up or signed a truce, France had already been conquered effectively. So even though the resistance was active, the government would have been forced to stop most of the efforts that they had towards actually fighting back. At least that's what we think would happen. We don't know because ultimately, as the story would end, as we know in our case, is that the Allies would win World War II. So who can really say? Either way, the convoys were vital for building up the military strength that they needed in order to be able to launch D-Day because you had to accrue a lot of resources, of manpower, of equipment, of anything in preparation for taking back the continent. And right before that, that is where the codes would be cracked. And that's the story of what we're going to be talking about today. I have a very related question, actually. So you know how there is the war between Russia and Ukraine right now? Do you think they have like codes that we have in craft? Oh, they because absolutely do. But it's even Russia dumber. Russia currently, like I think it was last week, they announced that they were going to take any ships transporting anything to or from Ukraine that get into their waters. They were going to treat them as a, like someone who entered a war, like they're at war with them. Yes. So basically it would be a declaration of war to enter their waters, even if it's just shipping out wheat, because... You know, we're going to talk about this later in our YouTube video this week, but like Ukraine exports the most wheat or something. Yeah, I the more research that I was going into that specifically for the episode is that uh, the like the World Food Program that mm -hmm. Ukraine is responsible in 2021 and 2022 of 50 percent of the wheat of the World Food Program. So it was responsible for something along the lines of what was it, like 300 or 400 million people specifically relied on food from Ukraine. So do you think they have codes like well, all of, like right now? Oh, well, of course, there's codes. There's always different things that they're going to have in order to encrypt messages. But the bigger killer and this this is the thing that's stupid. All right. When it came to Russia. And I remember when we saw this, how laughably bad it is, is that you were seeing Russians go and posting their positions basically on social media. Okay. See, I feel like it would be much harder because back in the day, like during all of the world wars, we didn't have social media. People can just pick up their cell phone, you know? Mm -hmm. I'm sure none of those codes would have been so impenetrable if um just one it just takes one little soldier, one guy to be like, hey. <laughs> I still remember at the beginning of the conflict, one of the things that was so bad was that when Russia had launched its strike, a lot of the equipment that they had just wasn't good. It just it wasn't good at all. And especially when it came to the radio equipment, so much of it ended up being destroyed or damaged or is just bad in the first place that it didn't function that soldiers and commanders were forced to use civilian cell networks in order to be able to communicate with their higher ups. And when they're doing this, that's traceable, meaning they would be able to trace exactly where enemy positions were, but not just like troops. We're talking the commanders on the ground that are making decisions and their calls are being traced to their exact position. They're going to be like, huh, it's so interesting. This guy who's literally in the Russian, I don't know, the command center. I don't know what it's called. Why is he calling this dude underground in a bunker in the mountains? And then you know what happens immediately after? What? Boom. Yeah, that's what I figured. Yeah, they get targeted. It's not great. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, anyway, back to the code that didn't have cell service. <laughs> exactly. Oh, also because that was electromechanical and it's way more like even just me trying to grasp that now for what they were capable of then before the actual invention of modern computers is incredible. And I, I have a whole thing in here that explains exactly how it functioned and worked. 
and I can't wait to dive into that, but I'm telling you this right now. I'm not a mathematician. I'm not a machinist. I'm not an engineer. I'm going to try and explain it to my, like to the best of my ability because there will be things about it that I, I had to like find examples and change them around in order to be able to show what it is that I'm talking about. Anyway, at the entire time that this is going down, the only way that the Allies were able to really combat things against submarines were through large escort services and simultaneously by tracking the submarines' movements and attacks. And only by doing this were they able to then change the course of their convoys by knowing where the submarines were and attacking. And in order to know where the submarines were going to be attacking, they had to rely on the cryptologists at Bletchley Park in order to decode messages that would betray the Germans' deployments. Ooh, okay, I had a little thing in my throat there. I don't know what was going on, but okay, okay. So th this is what they had to do at the time, and they, were, and they relied on these cryptologists in order to break through these messages. And that is a huge, huge part of what was going on during World War II. Like, people don't really give credit to the amount of stuff that was going on for, like, espionage. But not even just espionage, the, the literal interception of messages and breaking them down and resolving them without actually relying on people that were necessarily on the ground investigating them. That was a huge, huge, huge factor for World War II. And that is something that has created this kind of fascination that we have with people like Alan Turing that we would see from the imitation game, which I have this whole note in here. The Imitation Game, the 2014 movie starring Benedict Cumberbatch with Kira Knightley. But the thing is, Alan Turing's scientific range, what he did, what he was capable of, was so much beyond what it is that it is shown in like the cinemas and things like that. No, no, no. His principles and things that he established for computers or like the proto versions of what would become computers, these would mold the historical record and the relationship between humans and essentially early versions of what would be like AI. This is, this is at a time where computers exist, sort of, but not in nearly the same capacity of what you would see even like 10 years later. He, he is a guy who would go on and make essentially his own machine, specifically in order to break these codes. And okay, we're going to need to get into this, because in the end, Alan Turing would help crack the Nazi codes. He would help to establish the field of artificial intelligence, but also the story of Enigma, the thing that we're going to be attacking here, that story is actually older than a lot of people realize. So I had to kind of set the stage for what it is that we're talking about. So the Enigma machine, for anyone who is unfamiliar with this, who doesn't know exactly how all of this worked, this was a electromechanical cipher device that was invented by German engineer Arthur Schirbus in 1918. That confused me when I first heard it. I thought that the Enigma machine was something that specifically had been invented by the Nazis. I thought that was the case. And so when I was doing the research for this, that actually blew my mind. That this is a machine that had existed for 30 years prior to World War II. But do you know what it was initially used for? Scrambling messages? Well, yeah. Commercial? Please scrambling messages? Yeah. Like this, we're talking about something that was invented towards the end of World War One, and it wasn't used really for World War One. It was it was something that was designed for like commercial organizations, for companies, for for governments to be able to keep to, their trade secrets, right? In, exactly to be able to still encrypt their messages in order to you know it, so it's not intercepted because if someone intercepts a message of something that's going on for like a selling of stock or some other kind of thing. 
that could create a big scare because this is, you're not able to privately email someone if something goes through a telegram and then gets recorded by a, a person, right? The person who's writing down the thing for Morse code is going to be able to know exactly what they're saying, which means that any message that is being sent by telegram has to be converted. It has to be hidden, encrypted. So this device, which is something that resembled a kind of like manual typewriter, it used a series of rotors, like it was like spinning cog disk things in order to scramble the messages. And while Shirbus did intend for the device to be used only for real commercial purposes, the Nazis would end up using this before and during World War II in order to encode their strategic messages from German command down to the Nazi troops. And the recipient of the message also had to have an Enigma machine as well in order to be able to unscramble the message. That was the idea behind it. I mean, you have to think, the first patents for this thing were made back in 1918, as I said, with like the co-founder Shearbus and Ritter. And at the time, they had a German firm that created the device specifically for encoding secret types of messages for business and governments. Like that, that's the entire point. So at the time, the inventors had literally no idea that their encoding machines were going to end up being like literally one of the most important. I'm just going to skip over that word entirely and just say it's one of the most important factors towards the early stages of World War II, early going all the way into the middle. Definitely. I'm pretty sure nobody was planning for World War II. They had just lived through World War I. I mean, there's the reason why it was called the war to end all wars. But even then, there were still writers that were saying, oh, hold on, why can I not remember? What is the famous, there's that famous, famous line that says something like, ah, the Treaty of Versailles, that this did not end war. It merely delayed it by 20 more years. Hey everyone, Sakuya here, and before we get back to the show, I would just like to thank today's sponsor, eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure that your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. I think, was that actually a line from... Oh, dang, I can't remember. Why, that's going to bother me so much. But I remember that's a very famous line. And it's going to really bother me now that I cannot remember it. I'm sorry. I never heard of it. But okay. I, it just 
did so nobody called World War One World War One, right? Because nobody was no. planning on a part two. No, it was called the Great War. <laughs> right. So the Great War sequel surprised literally everybody yeah. else. Great War Two, Electric Boogaloo. Yeah, you know, it's the naming sense is impeccable. <laughs> I'm so glad you were not in charge of naming wars because Great. you cannot say part two of anything without saying electric boogaloo. Great war. Greater war. There you go. Followed by the sequel. Greatest no, war. No, no. We are not having our part three to this nonsense. Ima- well, it is the 20s. Wait. Hmm. Let's just wait. Let's, let's just give it a few more years. We'll see what happens. Yeah, yeah. Never know what happens. <laughs> Next decade should be fun. We're, we're like... Squ- Here's the thing. Currently, in 2020, between 2020 and 2023, we have been skirting a fine line of um, all of the countries on Earth just pissing each other off in such fun little ways without like actually, you know, pulling the trigger. Yep. And now we're seeing more of a breakdown in varying systems of like the um, well, uh, I'm not going to say the globalized system, but global economic markets. Everything is changing drastically now in comparison to what it was 30, 40 years ago. So that should be interesting because over the next decade, I'm sure, I am so sure that if someone's going to get too pissed off, like you already see, as we just said, Russia said anyone entering their waters is an act of war if they're supplying Ukraine. So, I mean. Who knows? Who, who really does know? No, that's an excellent point to bring up. That's right? terrifying. That's basically what Germany did in the early days of their, well, wasn't it before their war was even declared, they started patrolling the oceans like they owned it? We talked about this with the submarines. Yeah. Well, what um, they on had the done, patient exclusive. There was no reason Germany did not have to declare war on the United States, as an example. Like, they did not have to do this. They just did it anyway. Lovely stuff. Yeah. Lovely stuff. Anyway, continue. Okay, so, and then regarding the, the creation of the Enigma machine itself, the, the name Enigma, when we think of it nowadays, when you call something an Enigma, it is something that is confusing, right? It's, un, it's unknown. Or rather to say that it is so confusing and you understand it so little that it's practically impossible to know. That is an enigma, right? Like that, that's when you think of this. So when they are calling this thing the enigma machine, that's where the phrase of something being an enigma comes from, at least in popular culture. And these encoding machines were first sold under the brand name Enigma beginning around 1923, where, as I said, the device was used primarily for commercial industries during the 20s, and some governments began to use it prior to World War II, the most notable of which we know to be the Nazis. So, okay, we have this thing that is a machine and it can encode and decode messages. But here's the real question. How exactly does this thing work? Because how it works is going to tell us how incredibly important this thing was. So the Enigma machine was a relatively simple device, which sounds weird for me to say that in the first place, because you wouldn't think that something that is so valuable for encryption is going to be simple. But it really is, especially in comparison to the technology that we have today. So on the outside, if you were looking at this thing, you would probably think it's a typewriter. It's straight up like if you look at it, it is a typewriter that oftentimes when they were traveling it around, it was a typewriter that was enclosed inside of a box. So did they just type the message like they were typing a letter and then the machine would just scramble it and send it out? As they're going, yes. Okay. My question is, could they see what they were typing before it was scrambled? What if they made a typo? That's actually an excellent question. They would still have to be very careful with what it is they were because doing. Because could you imagine they're like, hey, we're going to attack this point on August 9th. And then they accidentally hit 8th. Well, what happens when you take, do something with a typewriter and you mess up? 
You have backspace. With backspace, how do you use that typewriter? No, with the, ty with the typewriter. You can't just get rid of it, though, once it's well, actually printed onto the paper. I've used some way you can. It just, like, stamps over it again, which looks horrible. But I'm I've had multiple typewriters throughout my life, but I had, like, modern ones, not, like, a classic old-timey one. Then that's probably the difference, because what you're asking is an excellent question that I hadn't even considered when because I was making this with in the first newer place. typewriters, like the ones I used when I was a kid. I don't know why we had a freaking typewriter. My parents were interesting human beings, but we had a typewriter. And when you hit backspace, it would backspace. And all it would do is like stamp over what was already typed. So it didn't actually like type anything. I don't know. It was weird, but I've obviously worked out for them. Like hmm. maybe they just got somebody who aced the ninth. Sixth grade, fifth grade, <laughs> fifth grade typing class. <laughs> well, you probably had that in the first place that you had to be trained specifically to do it. And then I'm also guessing that they typed things carefully and deliberately for what they were going to be doing. And if they did mess up, they would simply start it over because you weren't typing entire essays with this thing. It was oftentimes simple orders and coordinates. So you would have a page at most. And when I say a page, I mean a page in which it is spread out. Like, what, what is it now when you're typing a Word document or something like that? 300 words to a page? Maybe in this case, it'd be 100. And that is significantly less likely to be messed up at that point than anything else. But what would happen is that as they're typing this, right, the machine, as you type a letter, would scramble it by changing that letter to something else. So as you're typing, you would come out with a random scrambled sequence of letters in something that is called a polyalphabetic substitution cipher. The same machine, the same copy of a machine you would need in order to be able to unscramble that coded communication from where it came. Like you would need it set to the same settings and everything. And that would help determine the code. And so during World War II, the German command would use these encryption machines in order to be able to prevent allied forces from deciphering the messages that were broadcast to Nazi forces. Because you know what, um, remember what happened in, uh, in World War I when the Nazis, well not Nazis, what am I saying? When the Imperial Germans were sending out messages, like how, how the, um, why, am I, why am I fumbling for the word? I'm trying to remember the word here. Like for the telegraph lines, but it was like the underwater communication cables, right? These things didn't just go over land. In, you could send someone a telegraph from Germany to Mexico like in the case of the, uh, the, the, the Zimmerman so, telegram. Oh, wait, did they use, they, they cabled their telegrams through the ocean? You had to. There so, was no other way. Oh, wait, wait, that's basically what we do with our modern day internet cables. Like, you know that our cables that connect Correct. the entire world. If you were to go down and there. sharks attack them. I know, but if you were to <laughs> go down there and cut them, you could just essentially just. Cut the internet, yeah. From a country, yes. like, well, the connection of that country to another country. The moral of the story is like, we do the exact same thing right now with the internet. And it's really, really cool because you actually, like, it's the deep ocean. You have to yep. drop this down there. And then every time you have to fix it, you have to get the idea, the general vicinity that the problem may be coming from. And then you have to pull it up and then fix it because nobody can go down there to actually fix it. It yep. is insane and they did that for telegrams that's really cool they did not only did they do that but do you know where all the telegrams went through where britain because britain was the one that was laying the telegrams like like lines in the first place so all of the telegram networks even out of germany which was at war with britain their telegrams went through britain to then go to like the americas so why did britain let their telegrams go through i would have been like sir we are at war you need to find a new operator thanks 
Well, because that that's just what would have to happen. And oftentimes they messages... Did, it didn't have to happen. Britain could have been like, no. Well, because they could have. Diplomacy. If you are trying to communicate with someone to be able to do anything, you need to be able to actually talk to them. Like, for example, offering surrender or anything like that. So I get exactly what you mean. Like, why wouldn't they just cut it off entirely? But at that point, for the, a direct disruption of all communication, they wouldn't want to do it. And the key reason that they kept it alive is so that they could intercept messages. Because think about it, Gab, what ended up happening is that since all messages had to go through Britain in the first place, when Germany sent out the Zimmerman telegram, go to Mexico, who got it first and then broke the code on it to reveal it to America? Britain. So because they kept the communications open, because all communications then had to go through them, if they could just break the code of whatever the Germans were using, they could reveal it. I think I'm just too petty for the foresight of diplomacy. Grand scale geopolitical warfare and what would happen? I would yeah. be like, you know how like they would like wait things out. They wouldn't just like pull the trigger. They wouldn't just drop the nuke until they exhausted all other options. I'd be like, <laughs> no. I have the option. Absolutely I'm going to use not. it. Yeah. I'm like, no, why are we drawing this out? We could just end it right now. Because, you know, if when things are drawn out, your anxiety is really bad. It's the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> so similar to what happened during World War One, allied forces very quickly realized like, okay, they're using this encryption system for everything. So if we can decrypt these messages, this will give us a massive edge in exposing any weaknesses in the Nazi system. And that meant that the decryption of these messages became incredibly vital. Weirdly enough, weirdly enough, we think of this as something that Britain initially did. The British were not the first ones to actually break the code. And the code was broken multiple times. Poland, under the leadership of the mathematician Marian Rajewski, initially broke the Enigma code before the war began. And in 1939, they shared that knowledge with the British decoders because they could see, hey, uh, Germany is going to be invading us soon. We need to get this information out of here to reveal it. But knowing that there was a possibility that their codes were broken, the Nazis knew that there was going to be some kind of flaw in their secrecy. So they increased the security of their communications by changing the cipher system that they used every single day, which meant that just because you knew the initial code, that didn't matter the next day. So every single day, as soon as messages started to be sent and messages started to be intercepted over the radio or, or over anything, right? As soon as they caught any of these telegrams, then that meant that the allies had to break the new cipher every single day in order to keep pace with the changes. Which meant that the first couple communications that are sent out, you probably aren't going to be able to react in time. And it's not going to be until closer to the end of the day that you start to know anything. And by then, maybe it's too late. So they were just playing catch up. Except it's not even catch up. They were just way behind. Yes, they were constantly way behind. It was a constant game of cat and mouse. And the Germans just could continuously slip away. Even if some messages ended up being actually interpreted and caught, it was very difficult to be able to react to them in time to make any kind of difference. So the Germans were now at this point pretty much convinced that their Enigma machines this whole system was unbreakable. There's no way anyone can do anything for it here. It's just too much work to simply do anything. And so they would use this machine for everything on the battlefield, for their naval systems, for their diplomatic communications. Literally everything utilized the Enigma machine. All of it. 
And although these guys at like at, at Bletchley, they first succeeded at reading German code during the 1940 Norwegian campaign, this work only began to be somewhat useful around 1941 with larger campaigns where they were able to gather enough evidence over time of things like the invasion of Greece and also learn of the Italian naval plans for the Battle of Cape Matapan. The idea of it was is that let's say that someone sent out an order that said like it's, it's August 1st or whatever. And they say on August 1st at 8.32 p.m. you're going to launch this strike. Okay, they may not be able to break the code in time for that to be useful. But let's say that someone messages in something that it's August 1st and they say on August 30th, we'll be launching a strike here. Make sure your troops are in position. Well, if you were able to break that code and you did it over the course of that time period, if you gathered enough codes like that, you'd be able to reveal when major operations were going to be happening because those required way, way, way more planning than simply move your troops here, do this. Because you had to coordinate the logistics, like all the supplies, all the men, all the equipment, all the material, everything over months and months to be able to do so. So they had cracked the grand, the bigger idea of the code. Well, they cracked the code enough to piece together bigger ideas. And, they and if they had enough evidence of it. So if they had enough pieces ordering the same thing, they knew something was up. And also they could probably notice like, oh, these troops are actually moving towards that direction. Correct. So it it's looks all tied like- together. So Germany had no clue. They, they knew that something like this could happen, but it's much harder to deal with and react to. And they kept on changing the cipher every single day, which they believed was enough. Also, later on, they would end up adding an additional rotor because the initial machine used three rotors and they added a fourth one, which when they did this, that increased the number of variables by a factor of 26. What do you get when you take two childhood friends with a passion for unexplored history and a whole lot of booze? <laughs> you get the goofiest game in history, Queen's Podcast. Hi, I'm Nathan. And I'm Katie. And we're the hosts of Queen's Podcast. Join us while we spill the tea on women from history. We get into all kinds of stories here, like biographies of lesser known figures. For instance, Saida Haltura, powerful pirate queen. To the stories you might already know, like Marie Antoinette or Cleopatra, but with a fun twist. Each queen is paired with a cocktail that'll totally get you in the mood to hear fun, juicy, and dramatic stories from history. Because history is so much more than just dudes on a battlefield, and we believe that the female perspective and roles are just as deserving of their time in the spotlight. Right. So come get to know these queens. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. Cheers. So if you think there was a million possibilities that the code could have been, this became 26 million possibilities. I got an A in statistics and I have no clue how. Because I hate statistics. I hate probability. Yeah. I don't know why. Yeah. Yeah. So for all of those allies code breaking successes, these were only really possible for long campaigns. They couldn't react to anything that was quicker. They just couldn't. And the Germans in the beginning, they enjoyed some pretty good code breaking successes. They had something called the uh, the Bedienst, the surveillance service, which ended up breaking the British naval code as early as 1935, which allowed them to pinpoint exactly where the British and other allied convoys were going to be in the early stages of the Battle of the Atlantic which meant that the Wolfpack submarines immediately had targets that they were going to be able to go after. The U.S. would end up altering its naval code in April 1942, but by that point, 
the, the changes were too late to prevent all of the havoc that ended up being wreaked by Operation uh, Bockschlag, which that was the German U-boat campaign that was launched off of America's East Coast earlier that year. So this is that point, Gabby, where there were submarines in New York Harbor. Like the, You're joking. No, the Germans were in the harbor shooting ships. So what were we doing about it? We couldn't do it. Like they, we, we had destroyers that were constantly patrolling and searching for things around the area. But remember what we covered? Oh, for anyone who's actually listening to this, I realize that you aren't going to be aware. We did a patron exclusive episode on, on uh, U-Boat 505. So that's what we're talking about with all this. Go and become a patron if you want to listen to that episode. It's like a dollar a month. You'll get it. Yeah, but either, either way, either way. So that entire time, we're, we're patrolling. We're searching for those U-Boats. But it's a, the American coast is huge. And the, oftentimes the U-boats would wait until they had just gotten out of the harbor, fire, and then bolt. Get okay. the hell out of there. I get that. But that is terrifying. Yes. And that information was kept hidden from the public because you couldn't let people panic and know that the Germans were there. Well, wait, they didn't tell. No, they kept all of it hidden as much as they could. What are they keeping hidden right now? Because that just gave me anxiety. And that was like <laughs> nearly 100 yeah, years welcome ago. Welcome to governments. That's literally what they do. Imagine you're just like on the beach and there's a U-boat underneath you. <laughs> ah, please, that's No, that's, that's only in places like South Korea. And then the South Korean fishermen ended up catching those boats. That is terrifying. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So as I said, the change happened a little bit too late, and the Germans also managed to crack the Soviet and Danish code systems. But their efforts were way more fragmented because I probably need to cover a full episode on this, but the German high command and their varying different departments were always fighting with one another and competing over resources. So they never shared the information even between different cryptology teams because they wanted to be the one to succeed in order to make Papa Bad Mustache Man happy. Oh, it's not you, Chief. You could say Hitler. Yeah, I know. I just wanted to say that for funny effect, to be honest. And oh I'm, I'm so used to having to say that here this week just because of the amount of stuff where people get, um, not people, but like YouTube and other platforms get all antsy whenever you use certain words. But yeah, everyone wanted to please Daddy Hitler. And that, that was something that made them basically fight each other as well. Really? Yes. Yeah, it was it was a dog eat dog world within the Nazi, like Nazi hierarchy. No idea, but like, in my mind, right, I always thought of the Nazis as just having to do it because they would be killed. Not like they genuinely were super passionate and happy oh, to please both. Hitler. It was both. Like you could. When I you, just thought that they just did what they had to do to survive and not be the ones that were getting killed by their own government. It was definitely both. Like you had to do it to please because you the rewards you could get were massive, but also simultaneously. Um, you, you, you didn't want to get in trouble because getting in trouble at that time uh, meant that you could be shipped off to serve on the front against the Soviets. Was that No, bad? No one wanted to be sent to the Eastern Front, I especially thought... not going into the middle to the late parts of the war. Interesting. Really, really bad stuff. And so later on, the, the Enigma Code obviously would be cracked. It would be read. And this would cause the Germans to begin to switch things up, as I said. So they introduced a fourth wheel to the device, multiplying the possible numbers of settings to it by 26. But that number of possibilities that we're talking about at that point, Gabby, we're talking about something I said a million becoming 26 million. No, 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 no. With a device like this, 
We're talking about the tens of millions of millions. I cannot even begin to comprehend the sheer scope of all of that. Looking at it from like my brain today, my brain looking at this today is incapable of understanding it. And thus it is into all of this, into this entire setting of cryptology that our guy, Alan Turing, is first introduced. And because of that, I want to go ahead and tell a little bit of his backstory because you already mentioned this in the beginning with how sad his story is. And I'm telling you all right now, listening, this guy really did get screwed over historically, and he really deserves more recognition than what he gets. Even with how much he is celebrated now, it's just horrible what would happen to him. Not going to spoil anything just yet for those who don't know. So the English scientist, Alan Turing, this guy was born as Alan Matheson Turing on June 23rd, 1912. And that was in Maidavale, London, England. From a young age, he was a brilliant child. He had signs of high intelligence with which a number of his teachers would recognize, but didn't necessarily respect. And simultaneously, he was very socially awkward. He was a very poor communicator when it came to people and things. So if you want to describe him as someone who was on the spectrum, if anything, that was definitely him. Horrible interpersonal communication skills, but a brilliant, brilliant mind. And so when Turing attended the well-known independent Sherborne School at the age of 13, he became fascinated with math and science. And so after Sherborne, Turing would go and enroll at the King's College, the University of Cambridge in Cambridge, England. And from there, he would study from 1931 all the way through 1934. And as a result of his dissertation in which he proved the central like limit theorem, he would be elected a fellow at the school upon his graduation. Now I'm doing the research for this thing. And I find this and I look at this and go, oh, cool. Congratulations to you, Turing. I have no idea what the hell they're talking about. Guys, I'm telling you this right now. I'm not a mathematician. I'm not an engineer. I'm not a science guy. You're, you're the science person, Gabby. That's definitely I'm a biologist. You. And yeah. according to my old boss, biologists can't do math. What are you <laughs> talking about? So I had to go and do the research, try to figure out what the hell is this thing that he even did in the first place while he was in college, years younger than I am today, but obviously significantly more accomplished with all of that. And the central limit theorem is simply an idea that states that the distribution of the mean, so the average, will always be normally distributed as long as the sample size is large enough, regardless of whether the population has a normal, poison, binomial, or other distribution, the sampling distribution of the mean will be normal. So awesome. Okay. Oh, it's just a bell-shaped yeah, little, curve. Okay. Good, good. It's good that you were able so to process that immediately. it goes down the middle, you have your bell-shaped, you have your population, and it'll all be kind of like within the same range of your mean like it's just look up the bell-shaped curve you guys like bell-shaped distribution yeah and so i was very confused reading that sentence at first and i had to try and sit there and process like what the hell is this actually talking about and exactly as you said the moment that then brought up the bell curve i'm like oh oh okay that makes way more sense i can see it now a normal distribution what it's talking about is the systemical bell-shaped distribution with increasingly fewer observations of something when you go to extremes of either end. Basically, if you get a large enough population, things will average out into a bell curve versus if you get like seven people, you could have extremes towards either end. And that's not a normal distribution that you'd see in anything else. So, I mean, 
So that that's what he proved, basically. That, that, that's what I'm trying to get at from this entire thing. Anyway, fast forward a couple of years, and in 1936, Turing goes and delivers a paper on computable numbers with an application to the... Un- I, God, I'm going to mispronounce this here because it's a long German Un-Shai-Dung's name. problem? The Unshaidong's problem, in which he presented the notion of a universal machine, later called the universal Turing machine, and then the Turing machine that was capable of computing anything that is computable. This is the idea of what would be the precursor to the modern computer. Basically a device that could compute anything that is possible, not imaginary numbers or anything that doesn't actually work or anything. But if there is a mathematical problem or something that can be solved, the machine would be capable of doing it because it could be computed. Thus, a computer. That, that, that's the whole point of it. That's, that's where it comes in. So over the next two years past this, Turing would study mathematics and cryptology at the Institute of Advanced Study in Princeton, New Jersey. And then once he got his PhD from Princeton University in 1938, he then goes back to Cambridge and he takes a part-time job with the Government Code and Cipher School, which was the initial thing for the British code-breaking organization. And over the course of 1939, well, we all know what happens. Everything in Europe kind of goes to shit. Because that is the beginning of World War II. And during World War II, Turing then becomes a leading participant in the wartime code-breaking efforts, particularly with those that are dedicated specifically to German ciphers, because these were the more important ones. So he would work at Bletchley Park, the GCCS wartime station, where he would make five different major advances in the field of cryptanalysis. Specifically, the big one was being able to specify the BUM, as it was called, which I'm going to explain that part here a little bit later, but this was essentially a electromechanical device that was the reverse enigma. It was a machine that was meant to decrypt rather than encrypt messages and was specifically targeted towards the enigma machine. Turing's contributions during this time to the code-breaking process didn't just stop there. He did a whole lot more. Like, as an example, he also wrote two papers about mathematical approaches to code-breaking, which became incredibly important assets to code and cipher schools. This was so important. Gabby, I, I can't even begin to process this, because you think about uh, the, the stuff that gets um, classified effectively as valuable technology. The work that he did during this time was so important to the field of cryptology or cryptology. Wait, cryptology. Hold on. Am I messing that up? Is cryptology the thing of cryptids? And I'm saying that wrong now. Cryptidology is not a thing. No, no, no. What was the term when they would have it for like people studying it? Because now I'm like questioning myself whether or not I'm saying it wrong. Cryptology is this. Cryptology is this. Okay. Okay, here's the thing. I just second guessed no, no, no. myself because while I'm talking. <laughs> Brennan and I were going to call our original podcast cryptology, but then we found out that it is this. So okay. then we were like, okay, cryptid, cryptidology. There's no such thing as the study of cryptid. Okay. <laughs> we just made that up. I know. So I got really concerned there for a second <laughs> because I remember those conversations and, I, and I, my brain had a little bit of a fart and it just, I got so concerned there for a second that I was doing that this entire time. But Gabby, you, you don't understand his work. Everything he did here was so important that the government communications headquarters had to wait until April of 2012 to release these to the National Archives of the United Kingdom. It was that important that it was not declassified, I guess you could say, until then. So anyway, the code, the Enigma code, 
The code for Enigma. The code for the Germans. The Enigma code. That code. Yes, that was an Emperor's New Groove reference that I just did. Yes, yes, I, I know, I know. You're looking at me with judgment. I get it. I understand. How does all this relate to that that he does? Don't you look at me like that. <laughs> so here's the thing. It wasn't just Turing that was involved in all of these efforts, right? You had a team of scientists, a team of mathematicians and cryptographers that are all different people that are credited with cracking the Enigma code. Alan Turing may have been the head of this team, but there was a lot of other people that were also involved. Like, as an example, he had a colleague called Gordon Welshman who made his own version of that bomb machine, the, the decrypting machine, and he would contribute to it as well. That machine was also something that was originally invented by the Polish, but it wasn't as good as what the British would end up developing. It, it, it would require a very long time to be able to decipher any code, which was a very bad thing for Britain or any other allied nation that was trying to break things. So the problem that they had was never that they couldn't decrypt something. With enough time and energy, Gabby, they could decrypt all of these messages. The problem was the process of decrypting them was something that had to be done manually. And even with the machines that they were utilizing, those were so much slower that by the time that they decrypted the message, it wasn't useful anymore. They couldn't do anything. I mean, imagine, again, it's August 1st, and you say, ah, oh, yes, the attack will begin on August 2nd at noon. And you don't decrypt that message until August 3rd. By that point, there's no way to react to it. It's already happened. At that point, you're just reading news headlines. Exactly. That's the point. That's why these things were so incredibly hard and why the Germans believed them to be basically impenetrable, that it didn't matter. But then one day, Turing had an epiphany. He realized a way, a weak spot in the Enigma machine that they would be able to utilize in order to be able to solve things faster. It was a chink in the armor, something that the Germans had not accounted for that thinking about it now is something that probably should have been obvious, but we're going to get into that and explain it in a second because this allowed them to decrypt every single Enigma message. So then we're going to ask ourselves here, okay, so you have the Enigma machine and it does all this crazy stuff and there's millions upon millions of possibilities. What is the weakness? What is the flaw? I'm going to say this as an example here because I'm sure that you'll be able to get this from what I'm saying. When you type a letter, into the Enigma machine, what it does is it changes that letter into something else. So it's going to change it. You're limited by the alphabet, You're essentially. Correct. And if the alphabet, if when you type something, it is automatically going to change something to something that is not that letter, then that means that's a flaw. Because the letters can never be repeated. It's almost like in the game of, um, like when you're playing Sudoku, right? Once a number is used, you won't be able to use that number in that line again. It's already there. So, in order to kind of explain this so that anyone who's a little bit confused, I went ahead and found an example of what this would be so I could kind of talk about this. Suppose you wanted to encrypt a message that contained a total of two words, right? And the first word of that message was, say, history. That's what it is. Now, the first letter that you would want to encrypt there is H. So when you hit the H key on the keyboard of the Enigma machine, the electric signal from it generates into the, or it generates into the machine, and the machine then turns around and it changes from the rotor that letter from an H to something else like, say, an M. 
right? So now the H in history would be crypt encrypted as M. Similarly, the other words or other letters in the word would end up being encrypted as different letters than they actually are. So on the other end of the Enigma machine, if you typed history lover, because you know, we all love history, but the encrypted output of this would then end up looking something like or whatever. Like it's something that's just completely different. But you would never hit H and it'd be H. Correct. And that would be repeated over and over and over again and it wouldn't change. So you know that if M's are H's, then every single time there's an M, that means it's an H. And you know that that is the case because that is repeated. And also an H will never, an H will never be scrambled as another H. It never would be, which means that instead of 26 additional possibilities, there was only 25. 25. And that reduces the number of calculations that you would have to make by millions. Okay. See, when you hear it now, because hindsight is 2020, you're like, oh, duh. But back then, they would have had like no clue because it was happening currently. Correct. Oh, wow. That is wild. Correct. Because and I knew when you said, oh, yeah, the limitation is the alphabet. Yeah. But then you lessen it by what? That is wow. Correct. And so it gets weaker. Here's the problem. There was another, and this was arguably the even bigger flaw that had not been caught. If every letter was encrypted as a letter that was different than itself, and it never once did happen that that letter was encrypted, right? There was a phrase that was used in every single message that the Nazis sent to each other. The greatest flaw, arguably, in anything, not with the Enigma code, but with Nazi communications themselves. All Turing needed was a word or group of words that he was positive that the Germans were going to use in every single one of their Enigma encrypted messages. And do you know what that was? I'm sorry, I zoned out. What was it? Hail Hitler. Oh. Every single message that the Nazis sent would end in Heil Hitler. Then that means they can easily crack that because they could just look at the encryption of the H-E. <gasps> that is wild. Correct. So if the Germans put the phrase Heil Hitler at the end of every single message. That already gives you a bunch of letters that correct. are already cracked. Every single H-E-I-L-T-N-R in the message would already be accounted for. So in addition to the removal of one letter of possibilities from, you know, 26 down to 25, every single message, you know, had a starting point of an additional, what, six letters that were already solved, which meant that the tens of millions of millions of combinations were reduced drastically. So a machine that could be developed that was faster and more efficient than what they previously used plugged in with this kind of algorithm or with this ability to solve using these what's the phrase i'm looking for like this standard this initial base knowledge of it this would be able to solve the messages at a rate that was a hundred times faster than anything previously and from there they had it turing they cracked a, the code turing was a freaking genius exactly he was a genius ally technology got better at this time because we're talking about 1942 going into 43 Submarines ended up getting located and then destroyed. D-Day happened and the Axis was gradually eroded away at until victory in 1945. We know how it all ended. And that's the end of the Enigma code itself. Even towards the end, and I almost put this in here, but I, I decided not to because it, it, it's this whole other thing that I didn't want to get into even more technological jargon. But 
at the very end of the war, like going into the end of 1944 into 1945, they tried to switch to another encryption machine. But the and it was like, I can't even say the name. It's this long German name that I cannot pronounce in the first place. But this was a machine that was way more complicated and harder to break, referred to as like the wonder machine or the phenomenal machine by the allies. There was no way they could solve it. But they were made in such few numbers because by that point, the Germans had no resources. They were starving of precious metals, the light metals you would need to construct things like aluminum. They didn't have it, which meant that when they made one of these machines, think of like a, a, like a 10 pound typewriter or something. It's heavy, but you can still kind of maneuver that around a bit. These machines that they were making at the end, because they had none of the metals that they needed, so they had to use other metals that were heavier, ended up being like 30, 40 pound machines. You could not transport that along the front line to be able to do anything with. It was simply way too heavy. So they only got made in a few numbers and ultimately ended up being pointless. You couldn't do anything with them to actually make any big difference. So that's really the end of the Enigma machine and what would happen there with Alan Turing's involvement in it. So that brings us to the question then, what happens to Alan Turing? The part that is probably less pleasant than any of the rest of the story that we were talking about. Some from November of 1942, all the way until March of 1943, Turing was in the United States that was as a kind of a liaison over decoding issues. So he was a person who would be helping with the United States regarding their own cryptology and also speech secrecy systems. And changes in the way that the Germans encoded their messages meant that Fletchley lost a lot of their way that they would have been able to decode them as efficiently because this is when the whole new rotor was introduced that complicated things further. And Turing ended up not being involved in this next level of complex code breaking like he was in the previous stuff. He did his own thing, but his ideas proved to be massively important. And as a result, he ended up getting awarded the OBE, the, uh, the Order of the British Empire. That, that was like one of the biggest awards that you could get as a civilian within the British Empire. Because he was never actually a military member. He wasn't like a Sergeant Turing or anything like that. He was a civilian. And so at the end of the war, Turing gets invited by the National Physical Laboratory in London to design a computer. And his report proposing the Automatic Computing Engine, or the ACE, the ACE, ends up getting submitted in March of 1946. And his design was, at that point, an original, detailed design and prospect for a computer in the modern sense. Like, the, what we think of as a computer now, he was identifying and designing what it would look like at that point. But the size of the storage that he imagined at that time, what you'd be able to have for computing, was completely unrealistic for the day and standard. I couldn't actually find any numbers on what it was that he proposed, but you, you have to think that considering how 100 megabits of RAM or something like that was an insane possibility at that time in comparison to what things are now, I, you, you can imagine how small of a number relative to modern computing that this thing actually was. But for the time, it was just simply that it was unrealistic. It was seen as overambitious and hopeless. And delays in the project just meant that the entire thing never was fully approved. So Turing then goes and returns to Cambridge for the academic year of 1947 through 48, where his interests and what he gets involved in are a lot. He does things over a variety of different topics, from computers, mathematics, 
Uh, one of the fields that he gets really into is neurology and physiology. He studies everything that he possibly can, but he doesn't forget about computers during this period. He ends up writing code for programming computers, and he has an, a big interest outside of academics as well. He's not just some nerd. He goes and gets himself really into athletics. He ends up becoming a member of the Walton Athletic Club and wins their three-mile and 10-mile championship in a record time. And he runs the AAA Marathon in 1947 and ends up placing fifth. The man does everything. And he ends up going on to hold several high-ranking positions in the mathematics department and later the computing laboratory of the University of Manchester in the late 40s. He ends up first addressing the issue of artificial intelligence in his 1950 paper, Computing Machinery and Intelligence, and proposes an experiment known as the Turing Test, an effort to create an intelligence design standard for the tech industry. Really, over the past several decades, I'm sure that if you look at anything for computers, if you've ever heard of the phrase online talking about the Turing Test, oftentimes it's used nowadays to specifically determine whether or not an AI is capable of actual independent thought. Like, if something can pass the Turing Test and pass as a human. Like, have, have you seen it when that has happened online when talking about chatbots and things like for AIs? Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's the Turing test. That's what they're talking about there. And this is a concept that he's developing in 1950, which is an incredibly long distance to be thinking about over, over, like over the course of the years. Of course, not everything was going to be good. We talked about from the very beginning of this how his, um, his ending was not the best, how he was screwed over. And guys, I'm not kidding. That, that, is, that is precisely what happened. See, we haven't talked about anything with Alan Turing's personal life. And the reason that we didn't is because the ending for him is specifically tied around that. He never gets married. None of that ends up happening because he was a homosexual. That's why we were talking about things for the sexuality in the beginning. But he wasn't just a closeted homosexual because there were many times over the course of history around this time period that homosexuals would keep themselves closeted. They would marry, have seemingly normal lives, but then the entire time would be keeping their other identity hidden. And in his case, no, no, it, it was completely open for him. He just didn't bother hiding any of it. You could mark it down to his own issues with like interpersonal connection that he just had no idea for how to behave in social situations or hide anything for that matter. He was too matter of fact and blunt and to the point about it. Like he just came out to all of his friends and family with no pomp or ceremony or any of it when he did. He's just like matter of fact stayed like, yeah, no, I'm gay. That's it. Problem is homosexuality was illegal in the United Kingdom in the early 1950s. So when Turing admitted to the police that he was gay, this was bad. The police had been called to his house after a January 1952 break-in, and he admitted to them when, when they were there interviewing him about the break-in, like, what happened? And he told them, oh, yeah, no, I had a sexual relationship with the perpetrator, which was the 19-year-old boy by the name of Arnold Murray. And as a result of him admitting this and just telling the police bluntly, he ended up being charged with gross indecency. And so following his arrest, Turing was then forced to choose between one of two things. He could either face temporary probation on the condition that he receive hormonal treatments for libido reduction, or he could be imprisoned. 
He ended up choosing the former. And as a result of this, he underwent chemical castration through injections. What was injected into his body was a synthetic estrogen hormone for a year, which eventually would render him impotent. Because the idea behind it, what they would have for chemical castration was not just, oh, you're being castrated in the sense that you wouldn't be able to have kids, but no, he would not even be able to get an erection. It would completely destroy any sexual drive or urge for him whatsoever. It, it wrecked his entire identity. And so as a result of this conviction, Turing's securities clearance that he had and all the work that he had done for the military was removed. And he was barred from continuing his work with, uh, with cryptography at the GCCS, which had become the GCHQ in 1946. He would end up dying on June 7th, 1954, only a few years later. And following the postmortem exam, it was determined that the cause of his death was cyanide poisoning. The remains of an apple were found next to the body, though no parts of the apple were found inside of his stomach. And the ops, autopsy would go on to report that four ounces of fluid, which smelled strongly of bitter almonds, as does a solution of cyanide, was found in the stomach. Trace smell of bitter almonds was also reported in the vital organs. And as a result of this, the autopsy concluded that the cause of death was asphyxia due to cyanide poisoning and was ruled a suicide. Now, the reality of history at this point may be a little bit more complex than we think it is. And I'm not saying that this was murder. I'm not going to say that because this would be completely out of pocket to just think that it is. But they never went and tested the apple for cyanide. They never actually did that. Nothing in the accounts of Turing's last days suggested that he was suicidal. There was no reason to believe that he was. And Turing regularly already had cyanide in his house for chemical experiments that he would conduct in his spare room. Because remember, he was into science for everything. He loved studying stuff in all capacity. So he would do his own experiments. Thus, it is possible, mind you, possible, he had accidentally poisoned himself. We just really don't know. So he could have killed himself, or it could have just been an accident. But in the end, it didn't matter he was dead, which in turn leaves us with his legacy. Now, guys, I had no idea how exactly it was that I was going to end this, because that is his death. So what I did is I ended up pulling this last section directly from one of the biographies that is about him. And I'm going to kind of explain it for all the different things that have happened since. Because you all are aware of the name of Alan Turing, I'm sure. I'm sure you've at least heard it in passing. The legacy of Alan Turing's life and work didn't really come to light fully until long after his death. And his impact on computer science has been widely acknowledged today. Today, there is still the annual Turing Award that has the highest accolade in the industry of like computer science since 1966. But the work that he did at Bletchley Park and his role in cracking the Enigma code, no one knew about this until the 70s. He was basically wiped off the record and the full story was not actually known until the 90s. So it was only partially un... No, wait, what's the term? Um, unclassified. It was only partially unclassified in the 70s and wasn't fully revealed until going into the 90s. It's been estimated that the efforts that Turing put into this war along with his fellow codebreakers ended up shortening the war by several years because they were able to then target and go after the Germans in ways that they weren't able to before, thus 
weakening their power and allowing the allies to build their own resources. What is certain is that although we can't say the exact amount of numbers, countless lives ended up being saved because of his actions. Again, I don't really know how to end this whole episode. It, it leaves a bitter taste in one's mouth, similar to what I imagine the bitter taste of cyanide almonds would be like. Probably similar, and that's not a bad joke. It's just well, trying to cyanide, tie this whole thing into the end. Cyanide death is awful. It literally makes your body, like the cells in your body, unable to use oxygen until they die. Ugh. Yeah. It basically um, interrupts the use of eight, like you know, production of ATP. It's not. It's not good. It's actually, I think, personally, a horrible, horrible way. No, that makes to sense. To die. So, yeah, I ended up pulling a number of these facts on here, specifically from his varying biographies, to talk about how things today are at least different than what they were. So in June 2007, a life-size statue of Turing was unveiled at Bletchley Park in Buckinghamshire, this being in England. A bronze statue of Turing was unveiled at the University of Surrey on October 28, 2004, to mark the 50th anniversary of his death. And in addition to that, Princeton University Alumni Weekly would name Turing as the second most significant alumni in the history of the school. James Madison would actually hold the number one position, so there's an interesting little fact there. Turing ended up being honored in a number of other ways, particularly around the city of Manchester, where he worked towards the end of his life. And in 1999, Time Magazine would name him as one of the 100 most important people of the 20th century, saying, and I quote, the fact remains that everyone who taps at a keyboard, opens a spreadsheet, or a word processing program is working on an incarnation of a Turing machine. Turing was also ranked 21st on the BBC nationwide poll of the 100 Greatest Britons in 2002. And by and large, Turing has been recognized for his impact on computer science, with many crediting him as the founder of the field itself. Following a petition that was started by John Graham Cumming, the Prime Minister Gordon Brown, released a statement on September 10th, 2009, on behalf of the British government, which would at least finally posthumously apologize to Turing for prosecuting him as a homosexual. At least they apologized. Wow. 60 years later. How, how nice. Yeah. The following here is a quote directly from that statement. Did they want him to be like, apology accepted posthumously? I mean, it's not like he has is any... Posthumously or homously? Humously. Eh, it was close enough. It's not like he has any right to refuse at that point, to be honest. Posthumously. Posthumously. Yeah, there we go. Is that it? Posthumously. Yeah, that, that would be right. I'm pretty sure that's what we say back home, but I don't know what you guys say in the USA. The Posthumously. That, that's correct. No, that is correct. But either way, this, this thing comes from the final statement on this. It says, This recognition of Alan's status as one of Britain's most famous victims of homophobia is another step towards equality and long overdue. But even more than that, Alan deserves recognition for his contribution to humankind. It is thanks to men and women who were totally committed to fighting fascism that people like Alan Turing, that the horrors of the Holocaust and of total war are part of Europe's history and not Europe's present. So on behalf of the British government and all those who live freely thanks to Alan's work, I am very proud to say we're sorry. You deserved so much better. Then in the year 2013, Queen Elizabeth II, when she was still alive, would posthumously grant Turing a rare royal pardon 60 years after he died. Three years later, on October 20th, 2016, the British government would then announce Turing's law, 
to posthumously pardon thousands of gay and bisexual men who were convicted for homosexual acts when it was still considered a crime. So their crimes would be wiped from the record. According to a statement issued by Justice Minister Sam Gimma, the law also automatically pardons any living persons today who are convicted of historical sexual offenses who would be innocent of any crime today. Basically, that if there's anyone still alive who, when they were young, were arrested for a sexual crime that is no longer actually a crime, they're being removed from the record of that. Which is crazy to think that it took that long for that to happen. 2016. 2016. Yeah. Yeah. But that is the story of Alan Turing and the Enigma Code. There's a reason why I wanted to combine both of those into longer ones, because I didn't think that talking about either one individually would really give the grand scope of what we were talking about here. You have to understand the significance of the machine to really know Alan's contributions to everything. It's kind of crazy. Kind of crazy at the end. But before we go ahead and end today's episode, it is time for this week's family history. And the one that I've chosen for you this time comes from Jesse Yancey. And Jesse, before we begin things here, I'm going to apologize to you right now. I missed this message when you sent it in back in June. So I read the personal message of yours that comes with it regarding the July 31st date. And I do apologize for missing things. I know that at the moment that I'm recording this, it's July 27th. And I'll send you a message as I can right now. But I'm not sure what more it is that I can do at this time. But the idea of working with someone as a blacksmith, especially considering the stuff that we cover, does sound to be a fascinating thing. So I will go ahead and reach out to you regarding that. Either way, the story that he sent in is something that I find personally hilarious, but also simultaneously sad, considering what it is that we're talking about. So he says, my great great grandfather was with the forces in Texas that was keeping Pancho Villa across the Mexican border. My grandfather at the time was issued a Winchester 3030 which was passed down in perfect working order through my family all the way to my dad who has it now. When I was first allowed to shoot this gun, I broke the door that keeps the ammunition in the gun. And my family laughs at this now, but yes, the gun that survived multiple wars broke the first time I touched it. My God, man, I know it's a short little story that you're talking about here, but that is, that is hilarious, but also incredibly sad because for anyone who doesn't know what it is that we're talking about, this is the Winchester 3030. That is the cartridge that was first made for, wait, what was it? It was the, um, was it the 1894 or the 18, I'm pretty, uh, hold on, I'm going to look this up right now. It was, it was the 1894. It was the 1894 lever action rifle for the Winchester. When you're thinking of the classic late 1800s Winchester lever action, something that you would see in the, the almost like the Wild West or the films about this, that is the classic, classic weapon and the 3030 was a type of cartridge specifically meant for hunting like bigger game at that time. That is, that is a beautifully heavy round. And I, oh my God, that, that makes me so sad to hear that that, thing's, that thing broke. Either way, thank you very much for sending that in. I'm going to send you up a follow-up email here. And for anyone who is wanting to send in their own family histories, please do go to our website, go to the contact information and send in your own family histories and stories because we are going to be going through these significantly more regularly. And I even plan on recording several ahead of time so that we're going to be able to add them at the end of each episode. Everyone, thank you very much for listening. I hope you have a good rest of your day and goodbye, everyone.